Welcome to AI Chats, a podcast series produced by the lawyers at Haynes and Boone in the AI and deep learning industry team. We are here to explore the exciting, ever-evolving, and occasionally controversial world of artificial intelligence. I'm Hong Shi, an associate from the Austin office. I am joined by my colleague Jason Bloom, a partner from our Dallas office. Jason is the head of our copyright practice group. In our previous podcast with Jason, we discussed the creative capabilities of AI, the various types of works that could be generated by AI, like paintings, poems, news articles, and also whether such AI-generated works are eligible for copyright. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the flip side, that is, copyright infringement by AI. Can AI infringe copyright? How? What can we learn from the Supreme Court's latest decision in Google Oracle regarding AI liability and infringement? But before we go to those questions, our standard disclaimer: this podcast. Is for informational purposes only. Is not intended to be legal advice and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. The topics we discuss are subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. Jason, welcome to AI Chats again. Thank you for having me back, Hong. Before we delve into copyright infringement by AI, maybe you could first give us some background on this decade-long battle between Google and Oracle. Yes.、Yeah, so、first of all, the Google Oracle case, just to be clear, is, is not an AI case. It's a software copyright infringement case.、Um, but given the nature of what、uh, AI does and some of the defenses that could potentially be raised in an AI infringement case, including The fair use defense that was prominent in the Google case.、Uh, I think the Google Oracle decision could have implications for、um, how AI copyrights are, are treated going forward.、Uh, as you mentioned, the case dates back、um, to, I guess, more than a decade、uh, when it was filed in California, and it involved two jury trials. Um, two appeals to the federal circuit,、uh, two petitions to the U.S. Supreme Court. The most recent of which was actually、uh, accepted and resulted in a decision in Google's favor.、Um, you know, there's a lot of back and forth throughout the case.、Uh, Oracle won several rulings、uh, before Google ultimately、uh, prevailed at the Supreme Court on fair use grounds. So, Jason, take us back to the. Initial accused infringement. What exactly was Google accused of misusing? The case involves APIs, which are application programming interfaces, which are、uh, used to achieve interoper- interoperability between、uh, computer apps and operating systems,、uh, basically. And back in、uh, as far back as two thousand five, Google began. Uh, looking into designing a smartphone、um, operating system,、uh, which it, it ultimately did, and it was in talks with Sun Microsystems, which at the time
uh, owned Java, which is now owned by Oracle and is is what's at issue uh, in the lawsuit, um, to get a license to use Java uh, APIs in the creation of basically so so app developers could create apps for uh, Google Android smartphones. Uh, those were not successful. Uh, and so Google ultimately ended up uh, just using uh, basically 11,500 lines of uh, Oracle's uh, API code in its Android platform. Um, and that was the basis for the lawsuit is whether these copied lines of Android code were A, copyrightable, uh, and B, whether Google's use of them was a fair use, uh, which would be defensible under copyright law. Got it. So the court ruled in Google's favor based on its fair use analysis. Could you give us an introduction on what is fair use? So fair use is a, a defense to a copyright infringement claim. And, and generally, Fair use really only comes up in a copyright case after a party has been found liable for infringement, because generally speaking, if there's no liability for the underlying claim, then there's no re reason to reach the uh, defenses. Um, and an affirmative defense, generally speaking, is um, basically something that says, even if you are liable, this is an exception uh, to liability. So. Um, fair use only comes up when, when there's liability for copyright infringement in the first place. And what fair use is, it's a, it's a statutory exception that's in the Copyright Act uh, that provides that certain uses of copyrighted works are, are fair and are therefore not actionable. And the Copyright Act um, gives some examples, such as you know works used for educational purposes or uh, newsworthy purposes, things like that, but it's not an exclusive list. And it also includes a list of factors that courts should consider when determining whether a particular use is fair. Uh, and those include the purpose and character of the use, the nature of the work um, that is being uh, copied, uh, the amount and substantiality of the uh, portion of the work used, generally a, a, a use is more likely to be fair if you're using a, a snippet rather than the entire work itself. And then the, uh, the effect of the use on the market for the copyrighted work. Um, and fair use has been a defense. It's been getting a lot of attention in the circuit courts over the past uh, few decades. Um, it's a very fact-intensive defense. Uh, and as a result, there is not a lot of consistency uh, as to um, how it is applied between the circuits. There's a lot of uh, inconsistency and, and unpredictability when it comes to pursuing a fair use defense uh, in court. And you may get uh, completely different results in, in one circuit as you might get in another. And that, that, in fact, played out in the Google case, whereas the uh, district court found that, that uh, Google's use of the APIs was a fair use. The federal circuit disagreed and then uh, several justices, a majority of the Supreme Court, found that it was a fair use, whereas a, a very convincing uh, and well-reasoned dissent uh, disagreed and found that it was not. So, you know, even post-Google Oracle, fair use is a very uh, murky and unpredictable defense. So, as you just said, 
fair use appears to be a very murky, unpredictable defense. Would you say that the Supreme Court's Google Oracle decision actually helped to clarify this fair use defense, or actually made it even murkier and more unpredictable? Well, you know, I wouldn't say that it it added much more clarity, and and yeah, the the landscape was already pretty confusing. So I'm not sure that it added a, a whole lot more con- confusion either. Um, and the, the Supreme Court was presented with two questions. The first was whether uh, these APIs, these lines of, of code, were in fact copyrightable. And the second was whether, you know, assuming they were copyrightable or if they were copyrightable, the use was fair. Now, typically, a court is going to look at the liability question first. So is there a copyright infringement claim in the first place before it reaches a defense to that claim? Uh the Supreme Court did not do that. Instead, it decided to take on fair use without addressing the copyrightability issue. Uh, so the court assumed without deciding that this this type of code uh, was, in fact, copyrightable, but then addressed the fair use factors, but, but did so in a way that I think was intended at least to um, have a relatively narrow application to, if not the, the case before it, um, cases very much like that you know, involving, uh, you know, APIs and, and more specifically the type of, of declaring code that was at issue here. Um, so, and the court went on, you know, it was very clear to say at the beginning of its opinion that it was not changing existing fair use law. Uh, that was not its intent. Um, and so I think that statement in the court's opinion um, can be referenced in the future to say, look, this is not this is not a case that changes the law in any way. I mean, it, it applies the law in, in maybe a way that that some would not have expected, but um, it, it doesn't change the existing law. And it certainly didn't clarify much. So the Supreme Court's ruling appears to be based on its finding that Google's use of the code for a new mobile platform actually was transformative use. So what is transformative use? Right. So in the transformative use um, element, if you'll call it, has been getting a lot more traction in circuit courts over the past several years, which has caused some controversy because it's, in a sense, judge-made law. The the Copyright itself, Act itself does not mention transformative use uh, among the fair use factors, but courts have interpreted uh, the purpose and character of the use factor uh, to raise this transformative use element. And, and a lot of courts have, have, I think, wrongly considered that to be the primary focus of the fair use analysis. And and while I don't think it's wrong, and and clearly the Supreme Court says it's not wrong to consider transformative use, I don't think it should be the the primary consideration when when analyzing fair use. But, you know, that being said, a lot of courts have have treated it as as such. And I think what the Supreme Court did, and maybe the most significant thing that the Supreme Court did in the Google versus Oracle case, is it gave, you know, a different meaning to transformative use than, than I think a lot of courts had, had previously applied. And what I mean by that is previously a transformative use was viewed by many as being one that actually changes the underlying work in some way. So you take 
you know, a painting, for example, and you, you alter it in a way that you're basically creating a different work. So a transformed work and you're, you're doing something that the original artist didn't do. And that way you're, um, you know, creating something that is in and of itself, you know, original and unique. And even though you're referencing and incorporating this other work, you're doing it in such a way that, you know, your own creativity, um, kind of dominates the new, the new work, which, which courts have found to be permissible under, under copyright law. And, um, you know, kind of helps meet the balancing act between uh, the artist's interest and society's interest in new new works. What the Supreme Court did in Google versus Art Oracle is it said that you know Google's use was transformative because Google was taking these APIs and using them in basically a new uh, platform or context. So whereas the Java APIs had previously been used in association with uh, basically uh, desktop and laptop computers, Google's now taking them and using them in this brand new uh, smartphone arena, which is not how they had traditionally been used. And the Supreme Court's held basically that by using them in this new arena, this new context, that was used despite the fact that uh, Google is not actually changing the APIs in any way whatsoever, at least the declaring code part of the API. So it's not transforming them, but it's just using them in a different context. And and the Supreme Court was persuaded that that was enough to make the use uh, transformative. Now let's turn to the topic of copyright infringement by AI. Again, before we dive into the details, Jason, maybe you could first help us to understand some basic questions on copyright infringement by AI. Can AI even infringe copyright and how? Well, the answer is, is yes. I mean, AI can infringe a copyright because um, AI can copy other, other people's works. And, and that's, that's been done um, and and in really any computer program can can infringe a copyright by by creating um, an infringing work. Usually, it's done, um, you know, based on the commands coming from a human to, you know, make the copy. With respect to AI, the difference is that, you know, presumably AI is in some sense, um, you know, making a more distant decision to to create a copy from, from the initial, uh, human instruction. So it's not just a, somebody typing something into a computer. It's rather the computer is programmed to, um, in a sense, make its own, uh, decisions down the road. And yeah, in that sense, AI is, is capable of, of creating copyright infringement, just like, um, you know, any person or computer program. Um, the, a question you know becomes who is liable for that and that is is not fully determined and a lot of it i think what is done with the infringing work and and you know how exactly the infringing work came to be created what inputs were given to reach that point so actually ai can infringe copyright and some real person may actually be held liable so what can we learn uh, from the Supreme Court's Google Oracle decision to avoid such copyright infringement liability? Well, I think the most useful application of Google Oracle to AI is in the context where AI is creating uh, code, which, which is, you know, exists today. AI can, can certainly write code and AI can be programmed 
uh, in some cases, even to create um, certain types of computer applications. And, and I think even read broadly, that's, that's probably where Google Oracle could be applied to AI. And, and I think, you know, the most likely way we would see Google Oracle being applied to AI is, is one, I think those uh, who are claiming infringement or even those who are creating works through AI that, that are in the context of um, software could cite to Google and say, you know, Google Oracle, even though it didn't directly say that APIs are copyrightable, is, you know, assumed it and the court below had found that they're copyrightable. And so there's pretty strong evidence of copyrightability here. And then the second one, if once we get to the ground that the court reached of fair use, is that I think um, you'll see litigants citing to Google and Oracle in the AI context and other software context um, as saying that using code outside of the um, you know original arena in which it was created to operate, so let's say a non-AI use, and using it in the context of AI is a transformative use, even if you're copying the code exactly. So, you know, let's say some kind of software program was um, you know, written for a MacBook and later is copied um, either by AI or to be used in association with an AI uh, platform, the argument could be made based on Google Oracle that that is a transformative use because you're taking the code out of the uh, arena for which it was designed to be used and you're using it in this new arena. Um, and therefore, under Google Oracle, that could be considered transformative. Um, now, you still have to look at all of the other uh, factors. And, and again, uh, like all fair use decisions, uh, Google Oracle was was narrowly tailored to the facts at hand. So um, I don't think it's going to be a source that necessarily shuts the door on any particular dispute in the future. Um, but I can see it being cited. Another possible context of potential infringement liability may be where an AI system uses copyrighted materials as input data for training its model. Jason, what are some of the factors that may affect the fair use analysis in that context? Yes. Um, so, I mean, using inputs uh, into your AI. So, I mean, what, what often comes to mind is the Rembrandt project where um, a group basically fed various Rembrandt paintings into uh, an AI machine. And ultimately, the AI machine learned enough to be able to paint its own, you know, original Rembrandt style work. So, and obviously, Rembrandt paintings aren't subject to copyright protection because, um you know, they're, they're in the public domain due to their, their age. But, you know, you take something more recent, a, a more recent painting or photograph or, or even a book or other copyrightable work, you feed it into an AI machine and the AI uses that to create a new work. You've got a few potential areas of liability. One is that you're, you're basically copying the work when you feed it into the AI. You're making an unauthorized copy by um, inputting into your AI. Now, that's a at that point, nobody's going to know about it. So, I mean, it's, it's in a sense a private copy, um, which is more likely to be considered a fair use under the Supreme Court's uh, Sony Betamax case from several years ago. 
But once you start marketing the end result to the public, you know, then you're selling uh, a copy, which is probably, you know, potentially going to be considered a derivative work of all these other, you know, inputs that you fed into the AI. And that's when you're more likely to trigger copyright liability. Um, so what you do with the AI's output um, is where the liability is more likely to arise, whether you're selling it or putting it on a website or you know, even giving it away in mass. Once you take it public is where the liabilities more likely to arise, um, even though there may technically be liability at the, the stage where you're inputting it into the AI. Let's end this episode by talking about some of the best practices for avoiding copyright liability in AI. Jason, what should AI developers and users do to avoid copyright infringement? Yeah, so first of all, I would say, you know, never rely on fair use as a frontline defense. It's always better to get a license if you intend to use somebody else's copyrighted work, whether as an input uh, or to, you know, generate a substantially similar uh, output. If you think that you need to use somebody else's copyrighted work, get a license. Um, Don't rely on the fact that based on Google Oracle or any other uh, decision that your use is going to be a fair one. And the reason for that is, as I mentioned, fair use is a very unpredictable, very fact intensive and very inconsistently uh, applied defense. And there, there's no no guarantee that that the court year before is going to um, apply it in your favor. And, you know, again, looking at Google Oracle as an example, um, those two parties were able to spend countless millions of dollars on attorney's fees uh, over a decade to finally arrive at a, a result that was, you know, uh, very disappointing to one party and, and a great result for the other. Uh, most parties don't have the funds to do that. Um, and so, you know, relying on a fair use defense can can cost uh, parties more in attorney's fees than than the underlying work is worth. So I would advise parties to not rely on fair use. Now, obviously, if you get sued, you know, fair use is an available defense that you can rely on, but I would not base your business decisions on uh, hoping that fair use will apply down the road. Um, so, I mean, that's that's the first advice. The second one is if you need to uh, find inputs for your AI, if you want to create a project like the Project Rembrandt or something similar, um, and you need some kind of pre-existing inputs, if you can't obtain a license, you know, one good bet is to always, um, you know, look at public domain materials. So, uh, you know, materials uh, that were created before 1925, as of this year, uh, are in the public domain for purposes of U.S. works. Um, so if you can reference older materials like that, that's great. Other works can be donated to the public domain. Other works are made available for free, although you have to be careful that you comply with the um conditions of the the public licenses um, if you want to use those works. Um, but otherwise it's it's always better to get a license from the person whose work you wanna you want to borrow. Thank you so much, Jason, for joining us again. And as always, thanks to our listeners for joining us. You can find episodes of our AI chats on various major podcast platforms such as Apple, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. 
our podcasts and the relevant articles about AI topics are also located on Haynes and Boone's AI and Deep Learning Industry Team landing page, which can be found at HaynesBoone.com. Our practice page also contains our contact information. Please feel free to reach out to us if you'd like to suggest topics for future AI Chats episodes. Take care, all.